Liberalism has the distinction of being the first political ideology built around the flourishing in this world of the individual. And yet it, liberals have spent much of their history trying to lower expectations about what that flourishing could entail and in jealous guild-like guarding against ideological competitors who promise to deliver too much. Is a liberal one who reveres the good God, but unlike those unworldly leftists, is savvy enough to respect the devil, like Gertrude Himmelfarb, mother of Bill Crystal believed, or as Lionel Trilling remarked, are liberals always being surprised, disillusioned, and moved to illiberalism when their wise and good-natured moderation isn't appreciated by the deplorables outside. It's the popular show with James A. Smith and David Slavic, and we're delighted to welcome Samuel Moyne, an intellectual hero to the show, to discuss this issue. He has a new book called Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times. Welcome to the show, Sam Moyne. Thanks to both of you. It's an honor to be here. Well, uh, before we dive into the material of this this great history, intellectual history of Cold War liberalism, um, I'm glad you've agreed to uh, get into a bit of chat about current affairs um, and specifically the, the, the dreadful scenes in Gaza as we've got um, one of the, uh, the great skeptical uh, historians of human rights with us. Maybe we can sort of get something of, of, of your take. I, I mean, it, it strikes me in, in some ways we're seeing a, a development of the discourse of human rights and how it gets applied to um, atrocity in situations like this. But um, maybe I can just throw it over to you to get something of your, your current thinking, if that's okay. So, uh, you know, I, I think we're just at the beginning of, the, uh, of what's going to be a very long debate about Gaza, I mean, assuming that there's a ground invasion, um, the the early days are going to be very different than what's coming, because in the early days, I think it was legitimate to wonder why it was that there people didn't condemn, uh, you know, this this the slaughter of a lot of Israelis um, before Israel had struck back. But in the initial days already the number of civilian casualties in gaza is higher than the number of israeli deaths and it looks like there's more to come and in addition there are these acts that you know like seem reminiscent of um expulsion um now and of course and officially therefore protection but i think we really have to see what what happens i mean i guess my like edgier take would be that on both sides there have been claims about innocence um and appeals to the laws of war for as if they protected uh, or were built to protect a lot of innocent life um and you know i i think that this this is a, a debate that uh, first of all, it's not going to go well for Israel, but more important, I think, distracts us from, you know, what the underlying you know, political solution. And, you know, I, in my in my recent work, I've just worried that human rights and humanitarian law have some functions we might want to revisit. And um, 
I guess I'm hoping, you know, against hope that there could be a, a political solution to this conflict before uh, we get into like endless bickering about whose slaughter of whose civilians was justified and how many is allowed under the law and so forth and so on. The rapidity with which we got into that competition, the, the kind of mutual denouncements of, you know, will you condemn this, will you condemn that before you're uh, entitled to, to speak on the topic at all, um, has been combined or, or accelerated by a sort of competition of images, um, some of them real, some of them fake, this absolute bombardment that we've all had on digital media of, um, of yeah, as I say, like competing documenting of, of atrocity. Um, you, you've written about the, the, the sort of paradoxes of, of humane war, humanitarian war, war without casualties on our side, um, and, uh, and the sort of the technologies of war, the, the sort of the use of drones and so on. Um, do you see um, any kind of novelty in, in the way that this is already playing out, both this kind of, I don't know, <laughs> terror of the of, of the real, the, cra the crashing through of the of the right. of the fence at Gaza, combined with this. Um, well, I mean, the, Israel's own Twitter account, which seems like right. quite quite extraordinary in its in its literacy of the way digital media works and and the the way in which it's adopted the kind of the language of social media in 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 how it's kind of reproducing these images. I don't know. I so. I, I think there might be some novelty. Um, the you know the war on terror, roughly those who took the side of militants, you know, framed their claims in terms of international law and hu international humanitarian law, and not as not not you know they avoided siding politically with you know those who were being branded as terrorists. Um, and they merely said, well, they they can't be tortured or they can't be detained indefinitely or they can't be bombed to death by drones extra extrajudicially. Um, here there's a there's an alternative possibility. Uh, it's still true that already in these early days we're seeing ideas like, well, Israel's obedience to the laws of war as it interprets them you know, is just in contrast to Hamas's outright killing of innocent people. Um, and I, that's not going to go away, but it's possible that um, those who, you know, have some sympathy with Palestine's national claims will say it's not about, um, you know, we shouldn't restrict ourselves to how humane Israel's counterinsurgency is and litigate yeah. that alone yeah. we have to reach this underlying dispute about whose land it is and you know what what it would mean to get to a political community in which you know two peoples aren't killing each other so that's that could be different i think than the war on terror where i think yeah no no i'm sorry i just want to say that i'm agree with you i'm shaking my head vigorously i'm trying not to shake too much to get make anybody dizzy but uh, i think what we see is like there's a reset every time something really bad happens yeah. and there's an underlying like systemic problem that's a material problem for the palestinians and it's 
if you have to reset like what's just and what's good in responses every time something bad or overreach happens, but we don't have to do it. We have to do it for one side, but not the other side. You can see like the indignities of being the oppressed can be even more indignant. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, it's equally possible that there will be more outrages from the Palestinian side on the, on the Israeli. I, I, I do think that's less likely just because, um, I think the real sense in Israel is that their own leaders failed dreadfully and the restoration of security for the immediate and even the long-term future is just going to involve higher walls, more, more guarding of those walls. Um, and it will just be much more difficult for Hamas or anyone really to enjoy, enjoy the, the success of that the other day and in just, you know, breaching, Israel's defenses and it's so asymmetrical. So the the main question is is the international community already imposing limits on Israel's war aims is is Israel kind of going to come to the sense that it actually is counterproductive for its own continued existence to press uh you know into gaza with a ground force or attempt to reoccupy in the name of rooting out hamas or whatever so i i don't know but i think there's a there's a risk that you know you know given the way joe biden and others have responded that the the kind of mainstream official discourse about the war is you know that well israel's obeying the laws of war and the 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 death toll as it mounts is not going to be kind of the main concern. It's going to be the promise that it was reached humanely. Yeah. It's a bit of a groundhog day situation. And I know that's a, like a, a hugely uh, overused terminology, but you know, sort of uh, analogy, but it's what happens, you know, in groundhog day that people forget is that people remember more and more each time. And yeah. I think the West and people who yeah. are humanitarian and a lot of, um, you know, sort of sympathetic people, especially Jewish people in the U.S., are remembering the last time. And they're saying, like, okay, well, this, yeah. I remember you guys kind of went over to it last time, and we're seeing it again, and it's harder to forget each time. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think maybe the biggest difference but this round is, it, I don't think it's as much among Jews, but among kind of the world in general, um, in the global north there's just m many more people taking the moral claims of palestinians seriously than before and you can read the american government is trying to kind of live in the past of like carte blanche to israel but it's i think it's being prohibited from doing so and that's why you've seen joe biden belatedly say well you know, we're, we care about limits. We think it would be a bad idea for Israel to, you know, interpret its self-defense right in a certain way. And so I think pressure is, is kind of shocking those who, you know, believe that, you know, there's, there's just a, you know, um, there's, there's a kind of consensus around what Israel, Israel's policy in the past and that affects how its policy in the future can unfold.
I think that might account for what feels like a, a real overreach going on in, in terms of censorship, in terms of the, the banning of protests, uh, and in terms of the the, the just um, the, the sort of shameless, almost pornographic, really, um, use of, of violent imagery in the, the sort of propaganda for the um the the atlanticist slash um yes. israeli side that 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 there is a sense that actually this is the last window to kind of really push something like this i i mean as, as you say it, yeah. it's hard to imagine hamas having the opportunity to continue to produce atrocities um, yes. As, yes as this goes on already um the the um the the casualties on the palestinian side far um exceed those on the israeli side so it's like there's a very short window where you can continue to appeal to one week of atrocity in one direction when it's likely that we've got weeks ahead of of right. absolute right. disaster in the other direction um i mean that that's as well as the, this kind of very this unprecedentedly i think illiberal approach to protest and debates which in many ways it, it exceeds even that of the the war on terror um uh it, it, if i could just give you a couple of clips actually of what's going on in, okay. in britain it, it's quite remarkable to see um the position that the british labor party now led by a guy whose whole kind of professional standing depends on his status as a celebrated human rights lawyer that famous breed um uh, openly defending what anybody can read in the textbooks are are war crimes or, or breaches mm. of, of human rights so it, it, mm. these these are short so i'll just drop these in for us to um, maybe reflect on i'm very clear israel must have that does have that right to defend herself um and hamas bears responsibility a siege is appropriate cutting off power cutting off water well, i think that israel does have that right it is an ongoing situation um obviously everything should be done within international law but i don't want to step away from the sort of core principles that israel has a right to defend herself and hamas bears responsibility for these terrorist acts and i would call on all responsible states particularly middle east um responsible states to call this out for what it is um, and to stand with the world in condemning, utterly condemning, these actions by Hamas. I mean, this sort of slippage of language, Israel absolutely has the right to defend itself within international law, even as the um, the actions of defence that are being cited uh, uh, are categorically against international law. Uh, um, I mean, the fact that this is this is the language of, of, of a human rights lawyer today um is striking enough but the fact that that leaves the left in the position the radical left in the position of defending the traditional liberal kind of principles which in the past it would have criticized for not going far enough the fact that through jeremy corbyn's whole tenure as labor leader it was he was always the one guy speaking the language of human rights it, it, it's a sort of topsy-turvy world mm really um I, I wonder if you you well i i feel that your own work sheds a lot of light on on that myself but uh, i wondered if you i mean it's an astounding that. clip which i hadn't seen so thanks i mean what strikes me immediately is is it's as if for starmer there's no international law uh that 
restricts the right of self-defense. That's something that it gives Israel, um, which is, by the way, not true. There's actually a big debate about whether you even have a right of self-defense against a non-state actor. And then when he refers to international law as something that, you know, provides restriction, he clearly means not the right, but uh, of self-defense, but how the ho conduct of hostilities in the field is and from the air is going to go, which we know is beset by two problems. I've tried to argue this in my last book that first, that, that whole discourse legitimates endless war potentially, or, you know, a, a war phase of an endless occupation that it, it says Israel's the civilized power fighting humanely um, rather than, you know, just as bad um, or, you know, in the long run worse. Um, but then there's this other problem, which is that those very standards it, uh, that you know, are in the Geneva Conventions and so forth are so permissive uh, and even claiming to follow those standards allows so much collateral killing. And that's what we're seeing, of course, unfold over Gaza, even so far. And this, you know, sadly, the sky is the limit yeah. uh, in future weeks. It seems like he, he's addressing international law like it's a set of manners. Like, yeah. you know, like where it's like, you know, at the dinner party, like you might not use the right fork, but you use the right napkin. And, you know, it, there's all these sort of like, you know, sort of, you know, subtleties and, you know, they might not be hitting all the subtleties, but, you know, they're within the guardrails of polite company. And I, I think that that's a, a, a very broad departure from like the actual understanding that most international lawyers address these issues. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you can always treat international law itself as a terrain of struggle and say, no, Israel or America's interpretation of the constraints is wrong. And of course, I was just making an appeal to possible constraints in the law governing the, re the resort to force. Um, and like, that's a hard move, but I'm not clear we can just abandon the law because it, it, it's a terrain of struggle where you can actually win some victories. But I think we should do that in full recognition of how um, permissive it is to great power, especially in asymmetrical wars. It's almost as if Starmer is suddenly speaking like uh, the most radical, critical legal studies scholar who says, oh, well, don't you know that human rights are always defined by the powerful, by, by the most powerful uh, <laughs> agents? How can you be so naive as to think that it would ever apply to Israel? While um, the, the leftists, the pro-Palestinian protesters who are carrying signs about human rights are behaving like naive UN uh bureaucrats uh, there's a there's a sort of swapping or 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 moving around of uh of of, of the uh of the idioms here i mean I, there's I, nothing I, naive about u.n bureaucrats i just want no, to say. i'm sure yeah, no, correct, <laughs> no, i stand corrected there um I, I started with that lionel trilling quotation which uh in, in my own day job teaching em forster i've often cited myself and i was delighted okay. to find uh, that you had it in there and and uh, it's funny david talking about groundhog day this is this is a an important kind of face of of liberalism and i i, I just for the the listeners I, I'll, I'll just read it out as you 
as you quoted, Sam. Um, uh, Surely if liberalism has a single desperate weakness, says Lionel Trilling, it is an inadequacy of imagination. Liberalism is always being surprised. There is always the liberal work to do over again because hard upon surprise, disillusionment follows. And for the moment of liberal fatigue, reaction is always ready. Reaction never hopes, despairs or suffers amazement. Uh, uh, that's so crucial. Reaction is never surprised. You know, the, the, the Trump's, Trump loses the 2020 election. His supporters say, oh, no, he didn't. They just right. keep driving forward like this unstoppable id. Meanwhile, liberals are always mortified, offended. And also, you have to explain everything to them all over again every time. You have to the standard thing. Israel's atrocities are different because my taxes paid for them. My di my diplomats defended them. I didn't help Hamas do that. That's why I'm right. arguing this. That's why I don't have to make these condemnations before I even speak. Every time there's a a, a kind of geopolitical flare up like this, it, it's as if you're ex you're having to get through the same old arguments again because liberals yes. act as if they've never heard them before. Totally true. I mean, I think, you know, that's, it's a very interesting way of thinking about Trilling because of course in, in real time, he had in mind that, you know, liberals were naive and, you know, were being fooled by the Soviet union and needed to kind of understand that uh, they needed a tougher form of liberalism that took basically duplicity and evil seriously and didn't just have to like be shocked by uh the the you know what what illiberals do every time and so i i really like the idea that um in a sense when he talks about reaction which is in a sense already learned the lesson of human evil especially and you know trilling wrote a novel in which he personifies reaction in the form of a, a kind of born again Christian who understands original sin. Um, I really like your idea that, you know, that that applies to, um, you know, Donald Trump's forces who, you know, just kind of always, always already knew that there was a lot of evil in the world and, you know, lying is acceptable because why wouldn't it be? Whereas liberals are just always being shocked that there's another side in politics and that it's behaving badly. I, what I thought was interesting is your discussion of sort of like original sin and, you know, sort of psychoanalysis as like sort of a, like internal disciplining of hope. And, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. And as someone who, you know, was sort of a Obama bot worked on the campaign in 2008, okay. I felt that come down very hard on my shoulders Right. And um, if you could talk a little bit more about that, I, I thought I thought that was probably one of the most profound things that I've read in a long time. Oh, thanks. Well, no, it's also I think at the heart of Trilling's voyage, and you know what he takes from his own fellow traveling in the past, and you know his attempt to become a, a liberal, not a reactionary, who's beyond surprise. So he he wants to he equates that with a liberalism that is, you know, it's not betrayed by its own hopes and optimism. And it, in a sense, chastens its expectations, 
precisely in order to avoid surprise. And that's kind of a, and you know, it's a surprising move because you could say liberals need to um, keep their hopes alive and battle with those who, you know, try to, you know, co-opt them or misrepresent them or, you know, implement them by, you know, like, you know, the left uh, could try to implement them in the way the Soviet Union claimed to be doing so. But, but, but it's really important, as you say, that Cold War liberals say, give up hope, abandon hope, all ye who enter here, because it's going to be the central source of betrayal. And if you, if you give up your hopes, you can't be surprised because you didn't expect much to begin with. It feels a bit like 2016. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's kind of a it's kind of a response to 2016. I would say it's more, you know, the generational experience of all those who were so enthusiastic about Barack Obama only to see Donald Trump follow him because, you know, I think they instead of reminding themselves of what it meant to be kind of activated by politics again and even messianic, falsely messianic about someone, they kind of said, well, ultimately we can't win in politics. We can only fight a battle of position against fascists. Uh, and that's all we can hope for out of American politics. That's where liberals in the resistance today have ended up. And it's a, it is in a way a disabused kind of liberalism that's just like whiplash relative to the kind of, you know, messianic expectation that certain followers of Obama had. Now, do you, do, let's just zero in on that idea and go okay. back to your book. It, it, you talked about some some of the, you know, sort of great sort of liberal thinkers that a lot of people go back to and, and talk about. You talked about Popper, you, you talked about Hannah Arendt, and sort of their reaction to, to utopianism. And do you, do you think that, like, I, I my theory is, you know, after thinking more about your ideas and, and, and just reflecting over the last eight years is that we're getting like these mini arguments that we had as there were big arguments there about Soviet Union there versus the United States and sort of like yeah. what the West is and now we're getting them down into these like micro arguments but it's the same argument almost becoming like a reverse evolution back into the sea yeah yeah no that's super interesting um I mean I, I guess, you know, I struggled a bit with this because, you know, I I want to claim that liberals before the Cold War had a, a kind of naive side that was productive for them and they didn't experience this constant disillusionment. And therefore, if it's happening again today, it's because of a mistake made in the Cold War. But I'm sensitive to the idea that, you know, in the end, we're all subject to like oscillation between expectation and disappointment. And it's not as if the Cold War was the first time for liberals because, you know, they got excited about 1848 before throwing in their lot with repression of the workers' movement and buying themselves 20 years of empire and so, but I, I do want to insist that something big happens in the Cold War because it seems like even at the level of, you know, um, the kind of more, more enthusiastic periods that 
follow in, in liberal history, there's still, you know, a kind of wariness and a still a, a, an attention to threat management. Um, and above all, like externalizing um, their enemies so that it's never liberals own fault things are happening. There's never cause for self-correction. It's always like these lurking enemies that need to be located and, and, and faced. And in their own representation, th those enemies had been there from the start. Um, liberalism is very interesting in um, in pointing to its own origin moment very specifically in the 18th uh, century, uh, whilst also doing this almost autoimmune reaction of um, doing the most thoroughgoing denouncements of mm -hmm. the vast majority of 18th century intellectual currents. Yes, uh, yes. I mean, one thing your book shows is that the Enlightenment as a concept is almost the product of precisely these sorts of mere culpas on the part of post-war liberals. Um, that, that relationship to its own history and to history as such, it seems to be one of the novel things about liberalism. Yeah, that's kind of, you know, central to, you know, how I've, I've, I've written about um, the Cold War liberals, which is that they, they really blow up the, the kind of resources that liberals can claim and find new ones. So we've already talked about the kind of religious pessimism and the kind of secular equivalent of it that Trilling and others found in psychoanalysis, especially if they emphasized aggression um, as kind of inborn and inalterable. But I, I really emphasize in the book that, you know, where we now have a, a, a kind of way of being taught liberalism in universities that starts with the early modern period and religious war and starts with John Locke, liberalis, liberalism used to be about inheriting the enlightenment and making good on the promises of the French revolution. And it, you know, figures like Jean-Jacques Rousseau and GWF Hegel, even Karl Marx were, you know, taken as, as central to what it meant to make liberalism credible. And so I'm definitely with you that, um, the enlightenment central there because, uh, the enlightenment was however you read it about, um, breaking with tradition and, and emancipating human powers. And, um, you know, it was once the case that liberals really adopted that whole program as their own. And I just argue that it's, it's indicative that, you know, when they changed their mind about ambition and optimism in the middle of the 20th century, they also kind of scapegoat the enlightenment for leading to the Soviet Union. And they say Rousseau was a fascist and Hegel was, you know, paving the way to Adolf Hitler and Karl Marx was, you know, a totalitarian. So th these are all big losses, I think. And they're also mistakes on their own terms um, because none of those, you know, events and figures made the Soviet Union an inevitability. Um, and liberals, in a sense, gave up any claims they could make on those. Uh, and I think the results are pretty bad. One of the puzzling things about that liberal analysis that the, the wrong kind of enlightenment tended to win out 
by the by the early 20th century and, and thus Rousseau right. leads to, um, to to Hitler and Stalin one of the strange things about that analysis is actually how unoriginal it was it, it, you yes. could you can yeah. basically take it out of Edmund Burke's at the time actually prescient because it was before the terror at the time denouncement of the yeah. French Revolution so at, yeah. I mean, at the time this was a guy who'd previously when he was younger supported the American Revolution and was right uh, the hot stuff absolutely kind of radical yeah. he he ages into this this position of reaction where no, as people right. noticed at the time his his criticisms of the French Revolution were you know whatever the the truth or otherwise of them they were written in a totally conservative reactionary romantic uh, right. with a small arm yes. medieval style yes. so um it, it, in 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 basically taking that argument that revolutionaries ignore the the fine texture of culture ignore the fact that we have these kind of bad tendencies within us as well as good ones in trying to impose a kind of abstract yes. theory to yes. the, the the nuances of a nation um that in, inevitably leads to bloodshed yes all you all these figures that you that you analyze in in the post-war period have a version of that argument and Correct. the argument was there was it was there during the french revolution no exactly so this is this is what i take from uh judith schlar who who was a cold war liberal but i argue kind of didn't start that way that you know she she tries to show that you know conservatism actually redefined liberalism and of course we know that edmund burke was a whig rather than a tory and so forth but you know, as you say, his argument, especially, you know, some the argument of someone like Joseph de Mestre, who argues that the French Revolution is demonic, it, it begins to be taken more and more seriously by liberals who begin to say that revolution itself is leads inevitably to tyranny. And that they hadn't thought that in 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 the beginning of their movement. And when they they reach consensus on it at the time of the Cold War. Um, they really have almost transformed into the people they thought they were battling against. I mean, what's the whole story of the 19th century is liberals fighting reactionaries and sometimes joining the emergent workers movement. Sometimes liberals became socialists themselves like John Stuart Mill. But by the middle of the 20th century, there's very little daylight between liberals and conservatives as part of this kind of transformation. Yeah. I want to fast forward a few years, uh, okay. sort of from the period we're talking about, is uh, talk about decolonialization. And I, I think um, the, there's a lot of interesting, you know, that it, it's one of those things that comes up, I think, every 20 years. You know, like I, yeah. I think back that the, there's discussions and, you know, uh, of the global south and what they're doing and how you know what revolution looks like and then it kind of goes away and it comes back and it, and it sort of ebbs and flows and in the most recent iteration we've seen some sort of like perverse uses of decolonialization you know yes. like where it's like you know what what's an empire who's an empire all right. those sorts of things um and we've also seen like sort of and i think in, in the last year we've kind of just to go back to my theory that we're getting these big arguments and getting them down to these micros you're yeah. seeing the difference between ukraine and the difference in, in israel and some of the reactions of what what is colonial what's not colonial what's you know what's the reaction to that um 
but I want to go back to like, you know, sort of like Aaron and some of those thinkers of those times. If you could talk a little bit about what they thought about that and what, like what exceptions they found to those. Yeah, topics. totally. Well, it bears on our earlier conversation. So um, I guess, you know, I think that the biggest problem with cold war liberalism is that it just missed decolonization. I mean, the main figures involved in it say nothing about it. Uh, and that's true even when, say, Isaiah Berlin is uh, sitting in Oxford and, you know, there are major kind of flare-ups around the decolonization of the British Empire in Aden or Cyprus or Kenya. Um, and, you know, the reason I devoted a chapter to Anna Arendt is that she she was more forthright and, and in a sense honest than Cold War liberals without being one herself that, you know, Western or Atlantic freedom just wasn't something that was going to spread globally. It was rather she insisted her, the legacy of the French Revolution because the global South is poor. Um, but there's also like a sort of scary racist element to her thinking in general that a lot of people are concerned with. So I, I wonder through her if, you know, the worst problem with the Cold War liberals is that they, they really just didn't believe in global freedom um, and just thought of decolonization as a risk that beset Atlantic freedom. And th mm -hmm. then there's one exception, which I do find first in Arendt more briefly, and then in the Cold War liberals kind of permanently, which is that they are all Zionists. Um, and so they, they come to see Israel as a kind of outpost of Atlantic freedom in an unpromising place and back it to the hilt, even though it involves, you know, revolution, violence, nationalism, all the things they're officially against. Um, and so it's just a puzzle in a sense. Um, it's not that puzzling. They just kind of saw past their criticisms of nationalism and revolution and violence when it came to the, the Jewish people state founding. Uh, and then the question is, you know, maybe they should have been more consistent and had a theory of liberalism that was more liberatory yeah. not just for Jews, but for everyone else in the world. I think you're I, right to represent this as the as the crucial failure of, well, of liberalism as, as such, actually, I think that um, that, well, in, in Arendt's case, this this turning of of the American Revolution, the French Revolution, taking it out of its material context of being you know, two events that followed each other and turning those into instead normative categories. Are you going to have an American-style Roman Republican revolution or are you going to have uh, a messy, chaotic, wicked yes. French yes. revolution? And in then yes. saying, well, all of these anti-colonial struggles are, 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 are Robespierre in the making, are, are, are French revolutions in the making, and therefore normative in, in, in a normative sense we yeah. can say that they're wrong and they're all it's all hating badly. blowback i think too yeah I, uh, yeah yeah. yeah yeah but then to turn to zionism and without really joining the dots and without re really ever justifying why this one's different 
um, to, as, as you put it, to make Zionism the one statist liberation movement they supported, the sole place in their thought yeah. where earlier forms of liberalism, the, 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 that the liberatory liberalism, were allowed uh, to survive. I, I mean, that, that's, that difference and that disjunction, it, it seems absolutely crucial. It, it seems to me that that puts in motion two fates of liberalism today, the first is that because it never got, it never caught up with anti-colonial struggle. It never caught up with, um, with with post-colonial revolution, and never found a way to reconcile itself to it. That means it could only ever have the task of sort of defending the ailing empire or or managed decline for empire. It could only yeah. ever yeah. have a have a conservative function in the second half of the 20th century and, and into the 21st. And on the Zionism side, because it never properly explained it. I mean, a lot of these people are actually they're intellectually weakest when they're talking about Zionism. I mean, your your account of Berlin's discussion of, of Jews as 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 disabled hunchbacks right. who need to be made normal by um right. getting an Israel. This is the most <laughs> disturbing, preposterous, uh, 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 and ill-thought-out thing by turns. The fact that they never justified Zionism to themselves means that even today, liberalism has this kind of completely um, mystical, or, or or just it refuses to talk about it. Again, it's this point about the the kind of the the o the overreaction every time, and and right. the 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 censoriousness about talking about Zionism every time. It's because they didn't properly work it out back then. The the, the, right. the, the these two strands uh, 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 that, that you identified seem to be to be just the two areas where liberalism can't defend itself and can't right. rationalize right. itself. No, I like that. I mean, it's 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 schizophrenic in the end, and. Uh, that that leads it to be neither nor now i mean i i don't want to fall into the trap of claiming that you know earlier liberals were just more consistent um because after all if they were consistent it was in thinking that their empires should rule yeah. other people and that maybe there's a case for white christians to self-emancipate but not everyone else but I, I i do think you know i i try this more or less provocative line that well we 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 should want a liberalism that if if it's going to survive and make itself credible isn't just one that you know helps the working classes in america or the uk at it should be one that has a global program. It's just that it it got bogged down in empire in the 19th century and in military intervention in 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 parts of the the 20th. Um, and so, I think it it it's it's it, you know a progressive internationalism is one that we're just trying to figure out how to build, especially since many of us have been arguing against American, you know overstretch and war but you know we we need to figure out how you know neoliberalism could be challenged at the international level not just through a series of um attempts to you know break through at the national level and so the the spirit of it is to is to you know suggest that maybe beyond the schizophrenia you you know i think eloquently 
um, mentioned that there's also just this aphasia that the in consequence the Cold War liberals just have nothing to say for us about how we would imagine a progressive international politics. Yeah, I think I think when you have the tools of sort of international financial capital, you have uh, you know the, the the leveling of all boats, so to speak, with free trade, and these right. you know multilateral organs, you know sort of multilateral agreements that sort of limit the realm of the possible at the national level. If you're not addressing these things at a sort of more na international, you know, approach, even if it's regional, um, you know, I always as an American who lives in Canada, who used to yeah. do a lot of work with Mexico, I. I always find it's very funny. There's no sort of through line of progressivism through those three countries. And there, there's only three that are really yeah. make up the, the, the continent. And, and there's no discussions. It's, 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 it's quite funny to me that, the, you know, uh, even like it, it took, uh, and I, you know, I love the guys at the chapel, but, you know, it took yeah. a, like eight years to come to Canada, you know, and, and that's the type of stuff that we kind of are dealing with in, how do you imagine a, a better world if you're not imagining one in which we can, you know, join hands and not to be too much of a hippie? Right. <laughs> no, that's all very good. I mean, I, I don't, I, 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 I focus this book on, you know, um, Anglophone thinkers without fully kind of taking the story up to the present, let alone to other places, even within the Anglophone world, mm -hmm. like Australia or Canada, um, and let alone, you know, the wider world. I mean, I think we've discussed how the point is to gesture towards the need for liberalism to offer like genuine emancipation um, beyond the Atlantic zone. But then, then again, you know, um, we, our conversations are often mostly about politics in in those very countries, mm -hmm. and um, you know we can add Canada as an honorary, um, <laughs> you know, member of 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 the of the Commonwealth, Ju a junior men member of the coalition. Assistance. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, no, when I went to Canada a few times ago, I I've you know heard the expression "middle power" stated very loudly <laughs> and. I thought this is this is a, this is a this great is a, term. Yeah. I, you know, it's this is like, a middle uh, power podcast. By it's way. like fast yeah. casual dining. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> it's like uh, somehow self-refuting while also being ridiculous. But yeah, I was just amazed. But it was said to me very confidently that that's what Canada was. Yeah. So. It's the Applebee's of foreign powers. Yes, something like that. <laughs> I think this book is a. It, this book does um, does the great thing that's intellectual history books can do, which is make the reader write down a long list of books that are not actually that good in themselves, <laughs> but you've made them sound incredibly interesting. Um, it, it, the, the Cold War liberalism that comes out of it seems like a sort of cottage industry where the figures themselves have a lot of human interest and yes. what they wrote seems very interesting kind of through that lens. And yes. yet as a collection, they, they, they just seem curiously unimpressive despite their huge canonical status when we when we take them collectively almost less uh, than a sum of their their parts sort of thing yes yes how would you describe the the ongoing impact of them is it only that they've lent a kind of emotional tone to a, 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 a an ongoing kind of decline of liberalism ever since or or is there something more active and positive that can be said for 
what they've contributed? Well, you know, I, I'm generally critical and especially of the way they've attracted a cult following. Um, and I talk in the book about how when I was a young intellectual in the 90s, I was just presented these figures as if they had kind of gotten everything right. And our job mm -hmm. was then to, you know, I guess, worship at their grave and commune with with them for the sake of new events. And I don't I don't think that's proved credible um, because what that's meant in practice is just constantly looking for enemies and deflecting the need for liberals to make their own politics credible uh, locally, globally, wherever. Um, still, I, I thought, you know, I didn't want to write just a denunciation of them. That would be more uh, their style in a way of doing intellectual history when they wrote about at least some of the times the you know the enlightenment or rousseau or the french revolution or hegel or marx so i try to find redeeming features and you know i show that schlar in a sense criticized cold war liberalism before embracing it i show that isaiah berlin really did you know have a soft spot for kind of self-creation as the goal of emancipation even if he also kind of left it hanging um i i have more trouble identifying with karl popper although it's noteworthy that he developed his ideas about his so-called historicism out of the desire to um keep socialism honest he uh hmm. but then i think i most I try to give most love to Trilling because I try to show that Trilling, you know, in the end, never gave up the naive idealism that we talked about him rejecting because he really spent his life in a sense in mourning for it, which is different than repudiating it. It's really just treating it as unavailable, but still worthwhile. And so in all of these cases, I try to give them some, you know, a, a, a less totalistic rejection um, because I just thought that would be reversing the, you know, the the teachers I was told um, by whom I was told that these were just, you know, the greatest, uh, you know, thinkers and um I, I, I wanted to make the book at least a little bit attractive to those who take the Cold War liberals seriously because uh, I, I wanted to show that I took them seriously in order to find the, the severe limits of their overall program. I'm going to sound like one of the the Freudo Marxists that uh, Trilling <laughs> abhorred here, but I, I really do think that um, you are Freudo Marx. I, am, yeah, yeah, sure. like I love the marriage of Marx and um, Freud. And I, I talk about how Trilling, you know, read one of the first books about the marriage of Marx and Freud called The Freudian Left. And mm -hmm. even though it had it had dismissed him, he took it very seriously. Well, I think I think that the marriage that needs to happen is that Trilling was right to set so much store by the, the part of civilization and its discontents, okay. where Freud says 
the socialists are wrong if they think they can remove yes. human aggression through economic yes. means. But that doesn't mean you know revolution socialism is impossible. Is that right. It, right. it has to account for human aggression that isn't you know merely economic. And yes. I, I, I think that Trilling was was right not to be completely blackpilled by his own theory because I, yes, I, I, I think love that, that there is still yeah. a way out, as it yeah. were. Um, what, what about neoconservatism? How, how, do, yeah. how does this um, this current feed into that? That would seem like one striking way in which um, right. Cold War liberalism's sort of becoming a handmaid into conservatism plays out. And, and also, I, I think that this is this story is not over. A lot of a lot of people said that the sort of the Trump um, ascendancy in the Republican Party was the sort of death of the neocons. I think that the last week should have oh, told us yeah. otherwise. Um, it's it's very interesting that we're coming up to a decade of America first and yeah. anti-neocon yeah. sentiment on the US right. And yet, uh, where is your good old fashioned Pat Buchanan anti-Semitism when you need right. it, right? right. There, there, there is no um, pro-Palestinian anti-Zionist case coming from the right, as far as I can see it. Only Tucker That's right. has That's managed right. uh, has managed to bring out that paleocon argument. So obviously, the neocon hold on the right's imagination is a lot stronger. Than, uh, than we might have thought. I think that's right. I, I'd go further. It's also demonstrated really since the Ukraine war began, its stranglehold on the liberal imagination. So far from being, you know, writing its epitaph, I think Trump in a way unleashed it to um, have more influence in the long run, or at least in the medium run. Uh, you know, my book deals with neoconservatism through one of its founders and uh, that's Gertrude Himmelfarb who's the partner of Irving Kristol more famous and William mother of William Kristol still uh, you know uh, on the warpath if you will so I think um, I would just you know add that the the goal there is really to show how in the 40s, people take big steps towards neoliberalism and neoconservatism without getting there. Um, of course, Friedrich Hayek did. Um, but I, I, I wanted to show that Cold War liberalism renovates liberalism in, in ways that bring it into early proximity to these movements that will later become much more prominent in the 19. 60s and 1970s. And her Hemelfarb's a case in point because she really is not uh, uh, someone who um, does more than make liberalism much more conservative in the 40s. Um, in this case, she appeals not to Burke, but to Lord Acton and is very mm -hmm. self-conscious that, uh, that Acton and Burke are kind of both useful for liberals who are reforming after their era of optimism. And it's not the case that she embraces uh, Hayek, actually, who's also interested in Acton and first plans to call the Montpellier Society, the Acton Tocqueville Society. Um, in fact, she emphasizes that Acton had a socialist bent later in life. But the point is that when you redefine liberalism in terms of depression and sin, you're just taking a big step towards 
these successor movements. And so I, I don't get all the way there because my book is narrowly about the 1940s and early 50s, but I do, it's very important to my agenda to say, well, look how, how these, these, you know, bugbears were already looming uh, with the way these Cold War liberals were redefining their tradition. Well, Liberalism Against Itself, Cold War Intellectuals and the Making of Our Times is available now from Yale University Press. Uh, I hope we've represented it as a, an impressive but also e extremely entertaining book. I'm going to admit that I read parts of it in the bath. That's how <laughs> enjoy, enjoyable it is to, to, to read. Um, but also, just despite the fact that it's you know ostensibly a, a history book, perhaps your most historical book, um, it, it's, uh, it, it really is eye-opening for understanding the yeah. very fast-moving and, and, well, devastating events that we're all witnessing right now. It felt, it felt like a, you know, in this conversation as well, it felt like a one of those deep nourishing meals you have after you've been out in the cold for too long and you, you feel yourself warm up a bit and it all comes comes to, to the head. Well, I really appreciate, you know, you're saying that and the attention you've given it and, and the conversation, which has been great. Samuel Moyne, absolute pleasure to have you on The Popular Show. Thank you.